Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. Episode 95 of The Bowery Boys. Tin Pan Alley. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there. Welcome to The Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Happy holidays, everyone. We're talking this week about a place called Tin Pan Alley. This may be something that's not on your maps as you're traversing the streets of New York City. Or maybe something that's more on a cultural map that you keep buried somewhere. You know, you're aware of the phrase Tin Pan Alley. You know it has something to do with the history of music, but you may not have been aware that it was an actual street. Tin Pan Alley is essentially the birth of the modern popular music industry. A collection of songwriters song publishers, sheet music publishers, who basically controlled what people listened to from the first of the century, almost until the middle of the 20th century. Which is funny, because even once Tin Pan Alley moved out of this block, it still held on to its name, and the concept of Tin Pan Alley shifted from a place to a kind of music. Some of the people who came through here were some of the greatest names of popular music in the 20th century. You've heard of them and you've heard of all of their songs. From Irving Berlin to George Gershwin, Cole Porter, and more. What we're going to do is give you a little backdrop on what were you listening to before then? How did this music get heard? When I mean, you're talking about a period of time when there was no recorded sound, so how did people know about these songs? And then we'll talk about how they got those songs out there, who the people were, and why this area was so important. So join us as we go behind the music of Tin Pan Alley. I have an ear for music and I have an eye for a maid. I link a pretty girly with each pretty human blade. They go together like sunny weather, goes with a man of a maid. I've studied girls and music, so I'm qualified to say a pretty The haunting refrain She'll start upon a marathon And run around your grave 
What a song, what a song. Well, Greg, <laughs> do you want to kind of get us in the mood here, situate the listener? We should mention that there is some synergy going on here. This is a topic that's close to both of our hearts, not only because we like this topic, but, well, I have a day job, and that day job just happens to be in music. And so basically, if I screw this up today, <laughs> I, there's nowhere I can go. I've got to leave town. So, and then Tom is a accomplished pianist and has been Well, I don't know about accomplished, <laughs> but I did learn to play the piano back uh, a couple decades ago, and I didn't learn on classical pieces. Instead, my teacher back in Sandusky, Ohio, taught me how to play American popular standards. And many of these songs I'm realizing as I'm going through this were Tin Pan Alley songs. And they populate all of these songbooks for budding pianists, I guess. Right. They're still around as part of the bigger American songbook. So to actually situate today's podcast, because we, we are going to an actual destination in the city. It's a really nondescript area today. It's not exactly a place that has been preserved in all of its glory. We're going to 28th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues, but really more between 6th Avenue and Broadway. Broadway right, because, crosses between them. Right. This is about five blocks south from Herald Square and five blocks north of the Flatiron Building, just to give you a little frame of reference where it is here in the city. Today, it's costume jewelry stores, women's apparel, lots of knockoff handbag stores. And, and it's been sort of the floral district, too. Uh, the, some of these flower shops have been moving out. It's a neighborhood without much personality. But back in the day, the time period that we're going to be talking about, which is between 1885 to 1910, in the year 1900, this area, this tiny little area, had the largest concentration of music publishers in the entire world world. It was essentially the heart of the music industry. But now remember, we're talking about an era before recorded music, as I said earlier. The only way you heard music is when it was actually performed, whether it was performed by you, by a family member, by somebody on a stage, by someone on a street corner. But you weren't hearing it in any other way. Right. So when you're talking about the center of the music industry, you're talking about the center of the music publishing industry, where the music was put onto paper and sold as sheet music. And we're also talking about what we'll describe as, quote, popular music. This is sort of an innovation of the late 19th century. So but what were people doing before this? What were they listening to and how were they getting their music before this? Well, as you said, people would have to go seek out the music and listen to it being performed. Well, you know, Greg, this is actually a subject that you treated quite successfully a couple podcasts ago when you talked about Steinway and Sons Piano. One of the things that you discussed was how learning to play the piano in the 19th century and early 20th century was also seen as a positive attribute for a young maiden, you know, for middle class and before that wealthier families who could afford a piano. In the early part of the 1800s, however, pianos were extremely expensive. It wasn't until the period following the Civil War where they were beginning to be mass produced. So by 1887, there were actually 500,000 young people in the United States studying piano or taking piano lessons. What this meant was that there was a lot of music in the homes. Sometimes entire families would play together. 
And there was a big demand for sheet music because that's what they had to play unless they were playing by ear uh, without any music at all. Now, why were they playing? They were playing because that was their entertainment. Teen rebellion. So instead of a teen running to her room, slamming the door and putting on her headphones, she might slam the door and run to the piano and start banging out a tune. Well, sure. My grandmother still talks about during the Depression how she would play the piano to get out of doing other work around the house. You know, her (laughs) sister would be doing the dishes, but she could play the piano. Music publishers were also focused on churches, providing music for schools, for bands, community bands. And there was some folk music floating around as well. So when people would buy sheet music, because before Tin Pan Alley, there was still a sheet music trade. It was just more regional. And they were being sold in places like stationery stores or by even traveling salesmen. If you've seen The Music Man, you know something mm-hmm. about Professor Harold Hill, who's hawking sheet music. The dominant form of entertainment at this period in the late 1800s, well, in the middle 1800s, there were minstrel shows that would travel around. There were white performers performing in blackface. And after the Civil War, even black performers performing in blackface. And to be clear, this was uh, one of the dominant forms of entertainment. Yes, the this dominant, this popular. One, we might see examples of this in movies and things tucked in the background as one of several forms of entertainment. But I would say this was this might be, at least for a certain period of time during the 19th century, like the leaning form. Yes, before it was overtaken by vaudeville in the late 19th century. In these minstrel shows, there, there would be several different acts, including songs that would be performed. There would be spoof plays and things like that. But there was music that became popular because of these minstrel shows. However, when vaudeville took over in, say, the 1890s and 1900s, when all these big theaters were being built all around the country, suddenly there was an explosion of performers moving on the vaudeville circuit, traveling around to all these different towns, and they all needed music, and they wanted their songs to be a little bit different to set them aside as well, to have a competitive edge. They wanted that new song, that new love song, that new gag song, They needed music. Now, vaudeville in New York City, the theaters throughout time, I guess, would be scattered all over Manhattan, of course, but many of them would collect along Broadway and eventually surround Union Square, which I'll talk about in a second. And many of these vaudeville circuits would be based in New York as well. So the the performers could at least start here, get their material here, and then head off on the road. So this is where you come up with this interesting concept, but it's, it's so natural to us now, this idea that... Songs would be written to be sold, like as opposed to music that comes into the ether, like a folk song, or unlike a classical piece, which would be part of a of a larger composer's work. This is an era where people concertedly sit down, come together, write songs that they think people might want to hear, and then they go out and they actively sell them. Before Tin Pan Alley, the profession of popular music composer and lyricist didn't exist. You did have songwriters earlier in the century, Stephen Foster, for instance, who was one of these songwriters, who a prolific, who wrote a lot of great music from sure. the 19th century. There was a very rudimentary royalty system in place. He did not get compensated for a lot of the things that he did and that he wrote. There were, and he also had no legal protections. So what this new generation of song pluggers were, and this is their name that they call themselves by, song pluggers, is that they sort of had this consolidation around them, that they could go out and they could sell these things as if they're products, but they would follow through with this whole thing and try to sell the song to as wide an audience as possible for profit. So you had a lot of these young men coming up through the system here in New York City and would be prowling 
particularly around vaudeville stages around this time, around the Union Square area. You had people like, for instance, Marcus Whitmark and Sons, who would become one of the prime businesses over in Tin Pound Alley. They had um, a printing press at home. How it would work is the Sons themselves would actually go and perform the songs on, in vaudeville, would actually be stage performers themselves. They might have even been the sort of Jonas Brothers of the day, including, uh-huh. including young Julius Whitmark, who was known on vaudeville as, quote, the boy soprano. <laughs> so, I mean, they literally cranked them, ma- made the music themselves, jumped on the stages, performed them themselves, and would take these songs and to sell them to other people. They also performed in Minstrel. And they, really versatile performers. They would spin off from being performers into being music publishers and music sellers. And promoters. I mentioned this phrase, song plugger. So this was an early proto-music industry profession in the late 19th century. They would go from stage to stage. They would find performers that would be suitable for the music that they had written. And it's not just one or two people. It's like you have like two dozen different songwriters following you. If you're a star, it's like you have a swarm around you. The first real payola of the music industry happened at this time because if you were a songwriter or song plugger, you would go to these stars, you'd buy them gifts, you'd buy them drinks and dinners. If it was, say, a big female star, she might finish her show, go back to the dressing room and find a fox fur or some flowers just, just to listen to a song. You know, like They would like use all these forms of bribery just to get their ears, you know? And all of this is happening even before the Tin Pan Alley scene happens on 28th Street. Sure, this is, a, this is the 1880s. They could be incredibly successful by doing this. Charles Harris, for instance, who was a songwriter at the time, wrote a song called After the Ball. In 1892. Yes, he was lucky enough to get a vaudevillian star by the name of May Irwin to perform the song in her show. And just by this sort of slow rollout, because, I mean, it wouldn't overnight sure. sell a million copies, but throughout the, the few years, it would sell up to 10 million copies of sheet music because it it started here because she was able to bring the song out to the public. People would hear it. People would talk about it. People right. would go see the show. Other performers would then perform the song, and that's how it, it would roll hit, out. It would hit the circuit, the vaudeville circuit, get out there, get out to the rest of the country, who could also then go to their department stores and buy the music. I mean, could you imagine like a Lady Gaga song <laughs> rolling out <laughs> over six years, rolling out throughout the country with other people performing the song? I can. Like the star was the song, not necessarily the singer singing the song. Now, as I said, Union Square during the 1870s and 1880s was the center of musical entertainment in New York City, not just for this vaudeville burlesque stuff, but also classical music. I mean, as I discussed, Steinway Hall is here. The Academy of Music is around here. Tons of vaudeville stages, including Tony Pastor's Music Hall, which is one of the best-known vaudeville stages at the time. However, as we know, culture is floating uptown. I think we mentioned in the Chelsea Hotel podcast that one of the reasons that it was built there was because the area had become very fashionable with all the theaters nearby. So that was sort of on the way up to 28th Street. Right. There were a lot of theaters on 23rd. The songwriters then decide to collect nearby the entertainment industry. Very practical. Yes. And uh, settle at 28th Street. Yesterday I heard a lover sigh. Goodbye, oh me, oh my. Seven times he got aboard his train. And seven times he 
So probably the first publisher who settled around 28th Street was Leo Feist, who was actually a corset salesman. Did you know that? No. And he came out with the catchy tune, Does True Love Ever Run Smooth, in 1897. That might be the first actual Tin Pan Alley song. So let's walk up Broadway and hang left at 28th Street and walk over towards 6th Avenue. On the north and the south side of the street, you'll see row houses, uh, four-story row houses, that were just filled with the offices of the music business. Today, there are still several on the north side and a few on the south side that exist. Now, songwriters were hustling in and out trying to sell their tunes and hoping to sell them outright or to be taken on on contract because, well, if they weren't a known songwriter, they'd walk in, they'd hammer out their tune. Maybe a publisher would offer them 10, 15, 20 bucks outright, no royalties. Otherwise, if they were known, they came with another catchy tune perhaps they could be taken on staff. Performers were hustling around the streets. You can see them like ducking into the different music houses, crossing the street, jostling back and forth. They were looking for their new song because they were about to go on, say, the vaudeville circuit. People performing in concert halls, downtown saloons, anything in between. They were looking for patriotic numbers, sentimental numbers, gag songs, the whole thing. And I love this part, Greg. Second-rate performers would <laughs> definitely have to pay for their music, but sometimes top stars would be given the music for free because that would get the music out there. The top stars were already attracting the big crowds, and remember that the sale that the publishers were interested in was not the sale to the performer, per se. It was the potential for getting their music out to the public and then selling it in mass. There were also these pluggers that you were talking about hustling back and forth. They were looking for jobs. Now, you mentioned that pluggers were promoters who would go to the vaudeville houses and try any way that they could to get the music on stage. Mm -hmm. The men who were also the piano players in the showrooms were called pluggers. They would plug out or plunk out the tunes in the actual showrooms for the performers when they came to visit because they were trying to sell them on the song as well. And then I like to imagine sort of huddled in the corners of these offices, we have a very important person or collection of people who today give real value to these pieces of sheet music as well. The artists who would design the covers of mm -hmm. the sheet music. Let's not underestimate the value of these covers. They were beautiful pieces, illustrations that would attract the buyer in Macy's or wherever they were being bought. It is these covers that also makes this sheet music so valuable today. Well, think of an album cover. Like, sure. think, think of when going to, what's going, what's fun going into a record store, but to see all the covers that catch your eye. Of course, now when you see them, this artwork is so ornate and beautiful and so they would have their own art staffs many of these publishing houses right. right in the old days it could just be one person but over time it would grow into an entire floor of artists who were working on the front covers as you're walking along 28th street though and you see all of this activity around you buzzing about you can hear you can imagine the plunking of tunes coming from windows on both sides of the streets the cacophony of noise greg mm -hmm. led legendarily now this is perhaps just an urban legend but it <laughs> did lead visiting journalist monroe rosenfeld in a series of articles he wrote to comment that the noise sounded like a bunch of tin pans being beaten at the same time so this is where the name comes from from monroe 
This is the legend, the legendary coinage of Tin Pan Alley. What I find fascinating, by the way, is, you know, you think of a modern music studio where where the artists and the producers collect themselves and it's artists standing around a microphone and there's like a mixing board where the producers and everything are, are behind that. In these days, the quote music studio was essentially a parlor. Right. And then all of these publishing houses, like the centerpiece room was some nicely upholstered furniture and a right. coffee table. And because what could they look at? The visiting performer who was coming in to buy a new piece of music, they'd be welcomed into a well, showroom. Well, the walls would be covered in artwork and photographs of all the biggest stars, all the people who had performed the music, so to give it that little luster. Right. And then, of course, the centerpiece in all of these rooms was, of course, the piano. Now, this brings up an interesting element to this whole thing, and that was the way that these songs were so market-driven and focus-grouped. They were so aggressive. They had songwriters on staff, and they had another you know, line of people beating down their doors with their tunes. And they also had on-call arrangers. So say this, a particular star came in and said, well, I like that song. I hate that last verse. Right. They'd call in someone to change the verse right then and there. If they were like, oh, I like that song, but, you know, that last few chords sound awful. Change right. it. I want it upbeat. They snap their fingers and an arranger would come in and just change it right there. Can you imagine getting that kind of service today at <laughs> Tower Records? If that exists anymore. Sorry. No, I can't imagine it. <laughs> and not only that, if they liked a song that somebody else was singing in town, say they, they heard somebody perform over at Roxy's, and it was th this great new gag song, they loved it, they could come in and say, I want a song like that. And right on the spot, they could crank out a knockoff. By the first decade of the 20th century, Tin Pan Alley, just the publishers on Tin Pan Alley here on 28th Street, produced over 25,000 songs. It was, you know... Not copies. Huh? Different songs. Different songs. No, not copies. Exactly. And if you think about how many actual pieces of sheet music that represents and how many American homes it was in, and whether or not these American homes had any idea that this music was coming from a gritty street <laughs> in Midtown. By 1900, this was a national industry, just this, this music machine, this sausage factory of music <laughs> here on 28th Street. But of course, they did have, by this time, obviously, to survive, they had offices in many other cities throughout the United States that would be associated with them. That's another way of just spreading the music Long. There was safety in numbers. They were able to lobby Congress and get the things that they wanted to make them even more money and just make sure that the rights of the artists were being protected. What really brought them together in one sense was a, an international copyright law that was passed in 1891. This gave music publishers incredible power. They were now able to break songs worldwide. It, it protected them and made sure that they were getting paid for music that was being sold in other countries and then back European songs that were coming here. This improved profit margins. This just, just gave them more guarantees. So that in 1895 was the formation of the Music Publishers Association, which was basically like a trade union for music publishers, which really strengthened them. And they were able to then promote their needs in local, state, and national governments. This was also why they were able to make such an industry and make such an impact uh, during this period of time. Now, these publishing companies, of course, no surprise, were firms of 
white young men generally but the thing is they were making music for they weren't they were making music for everybody not right. just for white young men what was particularly interesting by the way is that of course many of them were jewish which was which i find very fascinating and i've tried to find theories as to why this was the a, a fascinating one that i actually found was if you think about it german immigration patterns into new york by the 1840s and 1850s like this huge influx of german immigrants mm-hmm. by the 1880s and the 1890s they were all having children who were now in their 20s 30s 40s who were now going off into the world a lot of them were actual german jews it's more their Germanness that helped get them into this industry because music figured greatly in German culture. I mean, think of Steinway, for instance, was a German family. Leopold Damrosch mm-hmm. was German. So it's no surprise, really, that if you think about all these bright, young, talented men who were just who were coming up in, in their 30s, they were also from these backgrounds. They would be attracted to this new forms of music and this new music industry that was happening. So now let me just run by these names of some of these music publishers. We've already mentioned some of them. Of course, Whitmark and Sons, mm-hmm. um, the little Jonas Brothers family. They were at 49 and 51 West 28th Street. And amongst their numbers of uh, people that they published were George M. Cohen, which we'll mention in a second. Um, Leo Feist, as you said, was at 36 28th Street and was well known for publishing songs such as Toot, Toot, Tootsie Goodbye and probably his biggest hit, which was My Blue Heaven, which was he course. would pr- publish later. Other publishers, Harry Von Tilzer, the Von Tilzer Music Publishing Company. He was actually a teen from a traveling circus who worked his way into New York and worked his way into the music biz. A prolific songwriter himself, and probably one of the most well-known of the publishing houses here on Tin Pan Alley. Uh, his, his big song, his big classic was A Bird in a Gilded Cage. Then there was Jerome H. Remick and Company, who would be at 45 West 28th Street. All right in a row. All They're all right or there. Across the street. It's incredible right. to think of them like next door to each other. Right. He had so many hits, over 100 ragtime hits that he actually bought his own printing plant to make all wow. of the pr- to make all of the the sheet music. His first million seller in 1906 was called the Dill Pickle Rag. <laughs> You know how that one goes, don't you? <laughs> Interestingly enough, now, like I said, it's this music's for everybody, but it's only being made by white people. In fact, some of these firms would subsidize smaller publishing firms that were owned and operated by black singers and songwriters. However, here on Tin Pan Alley, for a short time in 1905, there was a publishing company called the Gotham Attics Music Publishing. And if you weren't quite sure what this was going to be about, the Attics in its name was named for Crispus Attics, who was a martyred slave during the American Revolution. What they actually specialized in is publishing a mixture of black and white music. Collaborations, it, it was a colorblind publishing industry, and wow. pretty impressive for this period of time in 1905. And it was smack dab here in Tin Pan Alley. It was a modest success, though they were best known for publishing the song Nobody, which was the signature hit of one Burt Williams, who of that name sounds familiar he was one of Ziegfeld's prime performers during the Ziegfeld Follies of course and that was his signature song called nobody by this time they were coming up with every conceivable way of 
of being able to sell this music. You could go to Macy's. You could go to up to B. Altman's. You could go to Wanamaker's, all these department stores here in New York. They would have racks and racks of it. On top of that, they would even have piano players in the department stores that they would give the music to. And so while you were walking and doing your shopping and you kind of liked a song, you could go over and you could purchase hey, it Mr. right DJ. there. Exactly. Yes. By 1913, Billboard magazine would actually begin its very first sheet music chart. Um, its very first countdown, uh, a jazz age Casey Kasem. So the first music charts were based on sheet mu- music sales. Were based on sheet music sales. Now you might be thinking, well, aren't they recording music by then? I mean, in fact, the Edison did invent the phonograph in 1877, but it would take decades for this to really become popular and sort of a normal way to hear music. And then even when people did have these Victrolas and things in their house, by 1910, 75% of the music that was being sold was classical. Like it took a long time for people to wrap their head around the ideas that these sort of popular tunes, you could also buy these you know records and play them in your house it would only be by the 1920s that they even sell substantial amounts that it would change the music industry by that time Feeling from the ceiling, and it sets my brain a reeling when I'm listening to the music of a military band. Any tune like Yankee Doodle simply sets me off my noodle. It's that patriotic something that no one can understand. Way down south in the land of cotton, melody untiring. Ain't that inspiring? Hurrah, hurrah, we'll join the Jubilee. And that's going some for the Yankees by gum. Red, white, and blue, I am for you. Honest, you're a grand old rag. You're a grand old rag. You're a high-flying flag. And forever in peace may you wave. You're the emblem of the land I love. The home of the free and the brave. Every heart beats true under red, white, and blue. Where there's never a boast or brag. But should old acquaintance for God keep your eye on the grand old Greg, rag. I have a list here of some of the great songs of the Tin Pan Alley mm-hmm. era, of this specific era. And, and I'm, again, talking about, say, 1885 to 1910. You, of course, said After the Ball, which came out in 1892. The Sidewalks of New York, East Side, West Side, 1894. The Band Played On, 1895. A Hot Time in the Old Town Tonight, mm-hmm. you know it. 1896, Hello My Baby, Hello My Ragtime Gal. <laughs> Came out 1899. Bill Bailey, won't you please come home? 1902. Didn't a dancing frog sing these songs? I think. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I have them right here. Uh, Mighty like a rose. 1901. In the good old summertime. 1902. Give my regards to Broadway. 1904. Take Me Out to the Ball Game, which was a, a major hit, 1908. Which Van Tilzer's brother, Albert, wrote. Right, old <laughs> Albert Van Tilzer. Yes. Down by the Old Millstream, another mega hit, 1910. And then the young Irving Berlin scored his first hit in 1911 with Alexander's Ragtime Band. And that's where we can cut off this list, because then the industry moves a little uptown, and the publishing houses sort of scatter a bit around right. Midtown. Tin Pan Alley is a genre and concept 
as, of music as much as it is a place. So right. even though these publishing companies do start moving out around 1910, this style and this the energy that's associated with these publishing companies doesn't disperse. It just spreads out more through the, throughout the city. Which was a little confusing. Before I started my research on this, I just assumed, oh, well, George Gershwin, you know, I'm going to talk about these different songs that Gershwin wrote while he was part of Tin Pan Alley, etc. Well, Gershwin doesn't fit into this particular period because he was only born in 1898. So, so he would have been a teenager during the actual... Was, right, 12 years old when the, when the industry moved off of 28th Street. Right. However, he's still considered a Tin Pan Alley composer for some of his popular mm -hmm. songs that he was writing in the 1920s. So who were some of the popular songwriters who actually did work here on 28th Street? Well, one of the big ones would be George M. Cohen, who was not just a songwriter, but he was kind of an entertainment powerhouse. He lived from 1878 until 1940. He wrote music, he wrote plays, and he starred in them. Uh, he wrote really big hits like It's a Grand Old Flag, in 1905, Give My Regards to Broadway, I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy, and Over There. And the song would come out during World War I when the publishing house had moved, but he was still considered a Tin Pan Alley composer. Irving Berlin, uh, born in 1888, lived till 1989. He learned really to make money for the family by busking songs um, at saloons in the Lower East Side and singing at Tony Pastor's Music Hall in Union Square. He went to work for Harry Von Tilzer as a plugger in 1904 mm -hmm. when he was only 16 years old. And as we mentioned, his first hit was Alexander's Ragtime Band. He wrote an incredible 1,500 popular songs, um, <laughs> including so many classics that are still with us today that it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But let's just say two of my favorites would probably be White Christmas and There's No Business Like Show Business. Mm -hmm. Now, Cole Porter was born in 1891 and lived until 1964. He is considered one of the few Tin Pan Alley songwriters who also wrote his own lyrics, but he's not actually from this era. He joined Tin Pan Alley after it had moved up, and he, he became a Broadway star in the late well, 20s. Well, he's from the tradi tradition. He was familiar with all of these songwriters and familiar with how you sell music in this style. As is George Gershwin, who was born in Brooklyn as Jacob Gershowitz to a Russian-Jewish family, and in 1913, so just a couple years later, started working work as a song plugger for Jerome Remick and Company, making 15 bucks a week. So it sounds like the publishers that I mentioned employed all of these iconic songwriters during their tenure. Generally speaking, yes. yes. Most of the great songwriters got their start on Tin Pan Alley in some capacity, plugging away tunes, promoting tunes, mm -hmm. or writing on staff. But Greg, what happened to Tin Pan Alley? Because we keep saying this, it's almost like there's a magic date here of 1910, 1911. Well, there isn't a, there isn't a defining, like, this is the end of it, but it is believed that by 1909, most of these companies had left 28th Street. And like we said, they moved up to the Broadway area, they moved up to Midtown, like Feist was on 40th Street, Whitmark was on 51st, Remick was on 41st. So, I mean, they were still pretty close to each other. Don't get me wrong. They were on this concentrated on this one street. Well, I hope they still got to see each other, have lunch sometimes or <laughs> well, something. But now you had so many actors and, and producers and things buzzing through this whole neighborhood. And it was so much larger scene. It was such a larger industry by this time. They'd really gone prime time. Now, what's, of course, happening by the 1920s is recorded music is catching on. And sheet, the sales of sheet music are beginning to decrease. A lot of these publishing companies made a sloppy transition 
from from sheet music to recorded music, an incredibly important date in the history of music. 1927, and that's when the jazz singer debuts. It actually debuts at Warner's Theater up at 1664th Broadway at 52nd Street, close to a lot of these publishers, incidentally. What this did is it opened up a brand new opportunity because it's not just recorded music on, on records. It could be recorded music on movie screens. I mean, you know, you could get a song onto a reel of music and then it could send it to thousands of people across the country. And so these movie companies begin buying out these Tin Pan Alley publishers. For instance, Warner Brothers bought Harms and Whitmark and Remick. MGM Studios bought out Leo Feist Publishers and Robbins. Of course, in the 1930s came radio, the radio companies, and then they created record labels, these record companies like RCA, Columbia. If there was to be an actual official death day of Tin Pan Alley, the official end of the era, they claim it's April 12th of 1954, because that is when Bill Haley and the Comets recorded Rock Around the Clock, beginning the rock era and ending this sort of popular song movement. But incorporating, obviously, a lot of the things that were successful about it. So Rock Around the Clock killed off Tin Pan Alley. As music theorists sometimes like to say, that was the end of it. Now, the neighborhood itself, not a lot really happened since they left. Herald Square was a huge stop there. The, the Sixth uh, Avenue line. Yeah, the Sixth Avenue line. And, yeah. it, and it's still a big subway stop today. Because of that, a lot of flower sellers would sort of like cluster around this area. Well, they managed to remain here in this area and then actually develop into a flower district where a lot of flower sellers would be and distribute their flowers throughout the city. The 1970s was sort of the peak of this and then they started moving out to other places. Clothing businesses seeped in, you know, and then up and down Broadway, as you know, there's all this frippery and bobble stores and, and cologne right, stores. Costume and, jewelry shops and right, knockoff colognes. In 1976, a plaque was placed on 28th Street yes. that acknowledges that this was Tin Pan Alley. But unfortunately, that's the only real uh, acknowledgement from anyone that this area really exists. Yesterday, I visited the block between Broadway and 6th Avenue on 28th, and on the north side of the street, there are still many of those original row houses, which have been in the news because they've been threatened with sale. Right. Well, in 1995, some zoning changes occurred, allowing for like housing, because this was an all-business district. Right. And so in 1995, they changed to some of it could be like condos, and some of it has been ripped down. And there was a fear if, last year that some of these buildings... Ha um, were being sold and that they were just going to be torn down. Now, financial crisis, uh, e economic woes has sort of slowed that down so that they've gotten a reprieve. But, you know, it's not a landmarked area. Uh, so there's still some concern that this area could be completely eliminated. I'll have on our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, though I won't have like tons of pictures from this era because not a lot, but I will have some links. I found an interesting blog that actually lists all the addresses of all the publishing houses like as they were uh, you know, in the year 1905. I'll have some examples of some of this sheet music and some of the beautiful illustrations and that decorated them. So I hope that next time you hear Alexander's Ragtime Band or give my regard to Broadway or even take me out to the ball game. 
You think about 28th Street. And especially this holiday season, um, as you're listening to White Christmas, remember the tradition that helped give this song to the world and many, many other Christmas tunes. Though not written on 28th Street, it was written by a man who got his training on Tin Pan Alley. So thank you very much for listening. This is our last show of the year. There will be one more solo show before the end of 2009. So Tom, I just wanted to wish you happy holidays. Oh, Greg, thank you. Um, Cheers. So, um, and happy holidays to all of our listeners, but though you'll hear me one more time. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Have a happy New Year. Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.